Welcome everybody to this episode of A Voluntary View. It's me, Jeff, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Connor Boyack, who's the president of the Libertas Institute, a think tank in Utah specializes in liberty, as well as the author of the Tuttle Twins books and various other books. Really excited to have him on the show. Connor, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Wonderful. So now you got a name for yourself in the Liberty community, especially with the Tuttle Twins and locally in Utah with the Libertas Institute. But how did all of that come about? Is you've, you started pretty small, I think, but made a big splash. Hmm. So uh, I had some stops and starts at the beginning before I founded Libertas Institute. I, I was on uh, Mike Lee's Senate campaign when he was first elected. Uh, we had an incumbent senator, Bob Bennett, you know, very powerful and well-funded, but uh, I joined up with Mike Lee and a few other people to try and, you know, defeat Bob Bennett, get Mike Lee in. And we were successful. It was a lot of fun. And that was like my first political involvement that gave me a taste for like, you know, making a difference. And at the time I was very much, you know, support the constitution, tea party, you know, like we gotta, we gotta get people in Congress who, you know, support the constitution. And Mike's great. We, we still communicate often. And frankly, he's, I think he's doing a bang up job uh, with, you know, what's going on in Congress that he faces. So, but I, I kind of found a little bit of a passion and an interest. And I, after the campaign was over, I kind of bounced around a few organizations trying to figure out like who I wanted to get involved with. I, I headed up a chapter in Utah for this group called the 10th Amendment Center which was all about getting uh, state legislators to push back on DC using the 10th amendment. And so I did that for a while and, you know, held a conference and did all these things and um, ultimately realized that I needed to start an organization of my own, that I wasn't really finding one that was quite a fit for me. And, uh, and so founded Libertas almost 10 years ago now, and uh, just started growing up from there. We've had uh, fun every day since. Nice. Excellent. 10 years. That's wonderful. And you say Libertas Institute. Everyone says it wrong. Tomato, tomato. Everyone, everyone says okay. it differently, I'll say. Not wrong. So right, right. I guess, yeah. <laughs> how, how did the Romans say it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a dead language. Who knows? <laughs> All right. So 10 years. What are, what are some of the most interesting things that you've had happen over that 10 years? Things you've had to maybe push back against? Because I know Utah tends to be fairly, fairly conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. And what I always say to that is if you draw a Venn diagram showing the intersection between conservatism and libertarianism, there's a very strong overlap. Mm -hmm. And so we try and focus on those areas of common interest where our more libertarian ideas can find reception among a conservative legislature. So we make a ton of progress because there's a lot to work on within that kind of overlap of the Venn diagram. So we work on a number of issues and, uh, I mean, like we got medical marijuana passed in Utah, which no one thought would happen. And now we've got like a really robust program with tens of thousands of patients no longer being criminalized. Uh, it's, it's going really well. Um, we've done all kinds of work on like civil asset forfeiture and police reform. We've got some nation leading stuff there. We do a lot of like free market business regulatory reform kind of stuff. And uh, just yesterday, the governor, we had a little signing ceremony up at the Capitol signing our big uh, deregulation bill that's the first of its kind in the whole country that we're now then going to go help other states do as well 
So we're, we try and think outside the box. We're very kind of lean and mean and uh, very strategic in what we do. A lot of groups will just kind of, you know, publish a video or write a white paper or write an article on their website and hope that someone does something about it. We're, we're very intentional about saying like, how are we actually going to get this done? And what is it actually going to take to like persuade people and change their hearts and minds and what legislators are going to be the most interested and in? what stakeholders do we talk to? We, we think extremely strategically about what we're trying to do because we actually want to make a difference. We want to go home at night and feel like we're making an impact and not just twiddling our thumbs. Uh, but 10 years in, we've changed dozens and dozens and dozens of laws and uh, made a real positive impact on a lot of people's lives. So it's, it's just very gratifying work to be doing. Very nice. Having an action plan is huge for that, for sure. Now, I'm curious about this, the deregulation bill you mentioned. What does that entail? So this is what's called um, a regulatory sandbox. Now, if, if you think of like the computer world, a sandbox is a testing environment. If you have like a website uh, or you're making an app, you'll have a testing environment, which is often called a sandbox, where you can try and break things and you can test it out and see if it works before you then you know, put it into production and, and make it live for everyone. So a regulatory sandbox is somewhat similar. It's a testing ground where companies can operate under a lower regulatory environment and have a certain law or regulation suspended um, so that they can continue to operate while the legislature catches up to them. And so this is, it kind of flips on its head how this traditionally works when companies will go, you know, kiss the ring and try and hire lobbyists and try and muscle their way through, or they just start operating and get tickets. Like when Uber and Lyft came to town, right, their drivers across the country were just getting written up for tickets because it violated these taxi laws. And these companies just had to like muscle their way through legislatures and city councils to get it done. So Sandbox says, hey, hey, let's not punish anyone. Let's give them a little regulatory safe space where as long as things are safe, as long as no one's being harmed or defrauded, they can, we, we, we can shield them from this law or this regulation and let them prove themselves and show that there's no actual problem. No one's being harmed. No one's being, you know, uh, defrauded or anything like that. And then the legislature, the city council, right, can play catch up and amend their laws and say, okay, it's time to come out of the sandbox, but we changed the law so that your new innovative, you know, business model, if you're Airbnb or if you're food trucks or whatever, you now have a legal environment that allows your new business model that does things a little bit differently to succeed rather than being shut down because, oh, we passed a law 25 years ago that says, you know, you can't do that. But these lawmakers can never foresee every new innovative, you know, way of doing things. And so a regulatory sandbox is a model where there's that flexibility moving forward so that when that new innovative company comes along, they're not shut down or given a cease and desist or fines. There's a process for them to be kind of shielded from that while the legislature plays catch up to that new business model or product or service. Oh, that sounds Sounds really neat. Kind of still got the conservative comfort blanket of, oh, these laws are in place, but also the freedom to innovate, come up with a new idea that's kind of violating one of the current laws. Do they have to apply for the sandbox or does it happen automatically? Yeah, there's an application process where you go through, the regulators are involved. There's a lot of oversight just to give everyone that comfort that you're talking about. But whatever happens in the sandbox, there's a lot of reporting that goes to the legislature. So whether a company is approved or rejected or whatever's happening, the legislature can see like, wait a minute, why did that company get rejected? Let's go you know, change the law 
you know, even though they didn't get in the sandbox. So all that information to them so that they can still make those decisions. Right now, if an innovative company comes along and wants to, to change things, they've got to muscle their way through and hire lobbyists and, and the elected officials have no information. They don't where you can generate data and see if any problems arise from this company operating under this kind of experimental uh, process. And then so the elected officials, when it's time to decide whether they want to permanently change blindly and not having information that they can use, they've got data from the sandbox and they can be like, well, look, we shielded this company for like a year or two or whatever, and there were no problems. So now I feel more confident about going and changing the law. So it's a, it's a win-win all around and, and something new that uh, we just got past first state the country. And so now we're going to be helping other states follow suit. It's really amazing. Congratulations. Hopefully it Thank catches you. on in other states. Changing gears a little bit, I had another question. The Tuttle Twins. So these are really, really fun books and teach about liberty with a set of twins, Ethan and Emily Tuttle. They're a lot of fun. We give them out. We have an education initiative to help out homeschool families. And sometimes we send them your books if the kids are the appropriate ages. Mm. So. That's a lot of fun, but how how did you get that idea to kind of explain liberty through a set of kids? Um, that's a good question. So Elijah, who's the illustrator, and I had been talking about you know, hey, wouldn't it be fun if you know we ever did something like this? And we both had young kids uh, who were you know the age range that we wanted to make a book for, and and uh, I was wanting to talk to my kids about what I do all day fighting for freedom, but how do you, how do you talk to an eight-year-old about eminent domain, you know, or a six-year-old about socialism? Like, how do you break that down? And so one day I literally went on Amazon and I was typing in like, you know, Liberty books for kids or books that teach property rights, children's books that teach property rights, things like this. And there's just nothing. And uh, so Elijah and I started talking more and decided to try it out. Um, we did one book, just as kind of a fun little project and thinking in the back of our heads, yeah, wouldn't it be great if this took off? Wouldn't it, you know, but like, there was no vision. There was no like um, intention. It was just like, Oh, let's do a book and maybe it'll go somewhere. And, you know, I went to freedom fest and had a booth and we're marketing online and all these things. This is 2014. And I distinctly remember I'm sitting behind the freedom fest booth talking to all these like, you know, senior citizens walking by like, hey, get this for your grandkids, you know, and, and I'm sitting behind the booth and every 15, 20, 30 minutes, I'm getting a little email notification that someone ordered the books off our website because we had just recently launched and, and I get this notification and it says Ron and Carol Paul, and they bought <laughs> 50 books one for all of their grandkids wow and, and so i'm sitting there with a big smile on my face because i kind of got into this whole movement because of ron paul back in 07 mm -hmm. and uh and to me that was like the market signal like okay like if ron paul is getting this for his grandkids then like every other like liberty-minded person is going to want these too we're on to something here mm -hmm. and so we did a second book and then a third and people kept buying them and now we've just got books upon books Nice. And I heard that your the 12th Tuttle Twins book is coming out soon. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Based on Crisis and Leviathan by Bob Higgs, which is all about how the government grows during 
crises because everyone gets scared and then they ask for help from the government. The government's very willing to provide help if only we surrender our freedoms. And, uh, and Bob Higgs coined the term ratchet effect to, you know, if you know how the, the ratchet tool works, you, you know, tighten in one way and then it goes right back and then tighten another way. And, and, uh, but it only goes in one direction, you know, you can only uh, turn it that way. Um, and so he used that to explain that government grows, but then that becomes the new normal, right? The new baseline. 9-11 happened, but now we have the TSA and the TSA is never going away. Um, you get these new normals where the ratchet effect then considers that the new baseline and then th this crisis happens and the government grows and then it grows again and so that's what our book is kind of introducing through a fun little fantasy game story uh the twins kind of see it in the gameplay how these dynamics work with fear and ignorance leading to you know the the opposition taking control and and all these things and then they start to see that happen in their their real life where they start to see oh, hey, what we just saw in the game, this is really happening in our life. And they start to learn about those trends um, and what they can do about them and how the, the truth is so essential in combating fear and ignorance um, and, and helping us keep our rights. So very excited for that book. And we've been working on this one a while because we wanted a book that would be very relevant to what's been going on in the past year, yeah. but also evergreen because this stuff happens all the time. This isn't a COVID book. You know, it's not talking about lockdowns and mandates, but it's talking about these underlying trends and problems that certainly apply right now, but they've applied the stuff in the past, which Bob Higgs talks about in his book, and they're definitely going to be applying the stuff in the future. So uh, we've been hard, hard at work on this one for a while to get it right. I think we got it really right. It turned out really good, and it comes out uh, very soon. That'll be our 12th children's book. Excellent. I'm excited for it. We've already got it pre-ordered. So I also just ordered the the actual Crisis in Leviathan from mm. the Mises Institute, because I've always wanted to read it, but <laughs> there's never a better time than the present, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And totally. it's funny how, how really timeless they are, like you said, because like you said, with the TSA, the government starting something and then just not stopping it, that's not a new thing. I think Milton Friedman, back in the day, he said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government measure mentioned uh mentioned utah so of course you live in utah and i understand that you're a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints uh, sometimes yep. called mormons i am okay so now i happen to be uh, more of myself and i've the church of course tends to be uh, more conservative as most traditionally based churches do but i've noticed one of one of the apostles of course elder Oaks, Dallin Oaks, he used to be a judge, United States judge, and he's given several talks uh, recently. There was one about uh, how important uh, the authority of the police is. That one struck me as very odd because, of course, lots of news stories recently and around the time he said that, too, about abuses by police, them murdering people, stealing things, and on and on and on. And then the most recent one kind of struck a nerve with me on Easter Sunday, when everything is supposed to be about Jesus, he gave a talk on how important the Constitution of the United States is. And now you, you mentioned your children's books. We haven't mentioned very much some of your other books. You released a really great one recently called Christ versus Caesar. Now Caesar, from the New Testament, of course, and you kind of take Caesar 
to mean governments and states generally. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me like your conclusion was that in a religious sense, at least the state is kind of an instrument of Satan or the devil, which seems to be kind of at odds with what the church believes or teaches, or at least some leaders and members in the church. Have you gotten any pushback from church leaders or members about that? Hmm. Uh, no, but maybe that's because not enough people have read that book yet. <laughs> but uh, what, I, what I try and think of myself is, you know, whether you're a member of this faith or Christian in general, or frankly, no, no faith even, is like everyone's on a different journey. And like, I think of myself a decade ago and, and the causes I was supporting and the, and the things that I believed in. And I've, I've changed my views in a lot of ways. And, you know, and, and then I've got family members and others who are kind of set in their ways or, you know, they haven't changed their views, no matter how well I explain why they're wrong, <laughs> you know, and, and so like running an organization that's literally in the business of like trying to persuade people and, and change voters' minds and educate young people and all these things, you learn a thing or two about how, how people do change their minds, how you can get people to kind of have that intellectual conversion. And what I've had to learn a lot is that I have to be very patient with people, just as I would have wanted people to be patient with me. I, I, it took me a little while to kind of have the scales fall from my eyes. And that red pill, I, I swallowed it, but it didn't go down all the way, you know, very quickly. It kind of got dislodged a little bit. And then, I, <laughs> and then I had to like push it down and drink some water and get it to go all the way down. And so, yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, members of our church, you've got, you know, the Pope out there saying in left-wing socialist things, you've got pastors who are saying Romans 13, we have to support the government no matter what, we have to submit to authority. You know, there's, there's such a, in fact, I read an amazing book, I don't remember um, the name of it, but when I was writing my book, Christ versus Caesar, uh, during all the research that I did, I picked up this book about loyalist clergy during the American Revolution. And these were, these were members of clergy, pastors and others who were loyal to the king and who were using the Bible to argue against uh, revolution, to argue for continued submission to the king and saying you can't be a good Christian and rebel um, you know, against the king. And it was fascinating because you know, it's, it's one of those things like he who wins the uh, war writes the history kind of thing. And we mm-hmm. even in like American schools, you very much have a pro-American, you know, textbooks and narratives of like World War Two or World War One or the revolution or, you know, all these things. And so um, and so it's that case, I think, with with uh, the Christian viewpoint on the revolution is now we have this narrative of, oh, God was on our side and providence shown on George Washington and all of these things that that take that perspective and down the the memory hole has gone the opposing viewpoint which was very um present you know obviously at the time and so this book that i read rescued a lot of those speeches and newspaper clippings and all those things and compiled them into this book that for me was very fascinating to see these people making religious arguments in favor of subjection to the state and uh, and obviously that argument didn't win the day um but there are people who believed that. There are people who believe that today. And so getting to the point, I, I just feel like I don't want to be overly critical of, you know, someone from our church or leaders of other church or people of faith with different perspectives or people of no faith, because what I want to do is like meet them where they are and then move them in my direction. 
And if I am like overly critical of them or hostile, or, I mean, let's be honest, the talk that you're referring to, like privately among a few friends, I was like, you know, like, I don't like what I'm hearing. Like, it feels like I'm in a law school lecture and not worshiping (laughs) Jesus, you know, on Easter. And so I, I grumble with in my own little private, you know, social network or whatever, but, but publicly and, and building relationships with people, like, I think it is important that we, we recognize there are people who feel very strongly, you know, constitution and police and rule of law and, you know, all these things. And it's like, okay, I get that. Like I come from that background. I understand why you believe that, but I want you to see some of the things that I've seen come and see, right. Let me, let me share some things with you. And that's at least the approach that I try to take, which is a, a more friendly, open approach. Uh, early, I mean, a decade ago, it was, you're wrong, here's why, and I'm going to type up this great Facebook comment to, to tell you why I'm right. And I, I realized over the course of a few years that that was a less effective way of communicating with people and, and persuading them to your point of view. And so I've, I've learned a thing or two along the way that I try and exemplify when I encounter people like this who are saying things I think are nuts. It's like, well, I mean, I agree with them on a lot of things. So let's build on that foundation and maybe set aside that stuff you said. And let let me show you some stuff over here. And anyways, that's just kind of a general approach I try and take. I think that's that's really good. Because one of of the things that uh, is kind of charming, but it also kind of bugs me about uh, liberty community and libertarians generally is how, how snarky they can be. Not really, like if someone brings up an opposing viewpoint, they just kind of dismiss it. And I think it tends to put more people off than it does to win people to their side. You know, they might feel good because they they thought they got argument points or felt they were intellectually superior. Maybe they are, but it's not going to convince anyone. And I think, thinking of of books and literature, I think that's one reason why The Law by Frederick Bastiat is a great starting place for so many people because he's talking about basic things that most people can agree on, the law and why it exists, and then starts to take it into some areas where people don't, don't usually think about. You know, why, what, what actually does happen to our taxes? Should, should the government be doing these kinds of things? But you know, if you hand someone anatomy of the state right off the bat, it might it might put them off. Even sure. though even though Rothbard's writing is great, it's not not a good starting space for a lot of people. That's I think the magic of the Tuttle twins. Like you don't need to hand them anatomy of the state; you hand them the Tuttle twins and the fate of the future, which is based on the ideas from anatomy and the state, but in a much more shall we say palatable, <laughs> easily digestible. Uh, conservative friendly even type of approach that still conveys these powerful ideas but it's it's been very interesting to see how as we share through children's stories a lot of these very potent ideas people's walls come down right they're not reading like here's the road to serfdom i want you to read these you know here atlas shrugged right like people you know i never read a book like that but it's like hey teach your kids these important values and like you know share with them the ideas of how the world really works and people's barriers come down and they're much more open to considering these alternative viewpoints and these, you know, sometimes radical ideas that are presented in a much more simple way so that they can start to unpack and digest some of these ideas. Um, We've had great success with, with reaching all kinds of people who otherwise would never pick up some of those books that you mentioned. Excellent. 
I'm I'm really glad because I've I've liked the Total Twins books a lot, as I say. I think presenting the ideas in kind of a simple and an unthreatening manner like that, it can, as you say, bring down the walls because people between public school and between government and media propaganda, they develop almost an emotional attachment to the state and its institutions. And if you just blatantly attack them, then they feel attacked mm-hmm. and the walls go up and they get stronger and kind of dig into their viewpoint. But present in an unassuming manner where they can kind of start to think about things. Maybe, why does this happen this way? And then they can, you know, maybe it's a seed that lies dormant for years, or you know, maybe they do pick up the law or anatomy of the state after that and start reading. Sometimes it's a long journey for people coming yeah. to uh, a full understanding of liberty and what the state does and doesn't do. I think that's one thing. Um, one thing we try to do at Voluntarism in Action too. We go kind of the charity route because everyone likes charity. You want to help people, right. and so with that, we kind of put in the idea of you know you don't need the state to help people. The state doesn't have to be taking your money for welfare programs. You can do it on your own. You can do a lot of things on your own. In fact, absolutely. No, I think it's ideas like that are critical that, it, that when people see others doing them, it gives them more confidence that, oh, yeah, I, I can do that, too. Oh, look, those people have voluntarily organized to, you know, rebuild that person's roof or, you know, find them a job or help them with groceries or whatever. Like, we're often inspired by one of people, one another's um, actions, but oftentimes, like, everyone's waiting to be a follower. I think that's part of the big problem we have when it comes to charity and voluntarism is, like, people people are looking to other people to get the ball rolling and we need more doers who are just out there like taking the initiative to get the ball rolling to start something others will follow others will say hey i want to help with that thanks for getting started thanks for setting up the service project it was so fun to spend my saturday morning doing this you know but they wouldn't have never have done it on their own if but you know for the fact that someone else took the initiative so i think stuff like that's critical i think you're right there's people like like to not do a lot of work. And so the easier you make it for someone, the more likely they're going to do it, whether it's donating money or buying a kid's book. Absolutely. So uh, before, before I let you go, speaking of the Tuttle Twins, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you. There's now, as I understand, a Tuttle Twins TV show. And apparently it just broke some kind of a record. I, I just saw a quick little headline about it. What's that about? So we've been doing books for a while. We launched a podcast. We've got curriculum. We've got a game. Uh, we've got audiobooks. We're, we're trying to work in every medium possible to teach these ideas to the rising generation and their parents. And um, a cartoon is something we want to do for quite a while. And so we're talking with our buddies over at Harmon Brothers, who are just a you know nation-leading uh, ad agency they've done a, a number of amazing ads and they're all like-minded their kids all read the Tuttle Twins books and and uh we were talking a while and figured out how to pull this off and um and and so it's a it's a, f- a for-profit uh, and all of our Tuttle stuff is within Libertas Institute as a non-profit but this cartoon was spun off as a separate for-profit venture uh in collaboration with these guys and so they're doing a, a crowd investment where people can invest money 
uh, into the project and help fund the season one production of the cartoon. And, uh, and it broke the record for the world's largest uh, uh, kids uh, entertainment project. Um, so it's, there's lots of other projects that have, have done kind of the crowdfunding model to get off the ground. Teletwins has now been the most successful, largest amount raised. Uh, the community clearly wants to see this happen, which is really exciting. And so uh, at present uh, at TuttleTwins.tv, they're, they're raising investments to get season one off the ground. And then from there, hopefully do a whole bunch of seasons. Wow, so TuttleTwins.tv. That's right. All right. So no episodes yet, it sounds like, available for viewing. But sounds like it's definitely getting some funding to get it off the ground. That's exciting. Yeah, you can actually at that website watch the the rough pilot. The script is done, and so they did what's called an animatic, which is just the rough sketches of showing kind of what things will generally look like, and the videos are all or the voices are all rough, but at least gives the potential investors a sense of what this first cartoon is going to look like. And then from there, we're working on the scripts of all the uh, subsequent episodes right now that have already been funded. Um, and so, uh, yeah, no, the, I think in the fall is when they're planning to launch the polished first uh, episode of the cartoon and then go from there. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that too. And definitely going to link to the TuttleTunes.tv as well as the, the Bertus Institute and TuttleTwins.com. That's right, for the books. Excellent. Yep. going to link to all of those in the descriptions for this video. Connor, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Do you have, do you have any final thoughts before we cut out? No, just, uh, I mean, I love what your organization is doing, and I think we need 100 more organizations like it. And, uh, you know, this, uh, it, the, the problem we face, I feel like, is putting ideas into practice. It's fun as libertarians to sit around and theorize about a utopian world. If only people would you know, agree with us. And um, then you get the Libertarian Party that I think is, you know, its own uh, <laughs> attempt at uh, unsuccessfully trying to get involved electorally. Um, but I mean, there's the whole quote attributed to Gandhi, we got to be the change we wish to see in the world, we shouldn't wait for some utopian future, we need to actually go out and create a better society. And so I think efforts like ours and yours uh, are, are really uh, impactful and, and imperative. And so I applaud you guys for what you're doing and, and hope that uh, uh, we can all continue making an impact. I'd say the same. The more people who are working, the better things are going to be. All right. Thank you very much, Connor. Thanks. You have a great day. Hey, thank you very much for watching this video. If you liked it, please like, share, subscribe, drop a comment. If you'd like, please go over and visit our website and donate to one of our causes. VIA couldn't do anything without the generous support of donors like you.